This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us today for the second quarter updates of our Ned Group Investments Flexible Income Fund. My name's Douglas Nicholl, and I'm an investment analyst on the Best of Breed team here at Ned Group Investments. Today, I'm joined by Rashad Tayob and Lara Dalmayo, who are from ABAX Investments and are managers of the fund. But before we go into the conversation, I just wanted to give you a bit of context around the fund. This strategy sets out to achieve a cash plus return over rolling six months with a key focus on capital preservation. Last quarter, we were all sitting here in front of our screens and it showed a historic spike in yields and we saw falling fixed income asset prices across the board, except for cash. Uh, There was a lot of investor anxiety at the time, you know, around the drawdown of the fund. And I'm sure a lot of other larger funds in the industry were also having to deal with, with, with this. But on that call, Rashad reassured us that he expected the fund to rebound given the extent of the sell-off. And I guess today, Laura and Rashad are sitting a little bit more relaxed in their seats because the fund has managed to post a net return of 3.9% during quarter two. And this has recouped the majority of all of the losses of 3.2% in March. And it's added a little bit extra for investors. Rashad will take us through the performance in detail today But more importantly, we'll also touch on how the portfolio is positioned going forward. Before I hand over to Rashad, I just want to point out a very attractive feature of this fund, which I believe really sets it apart from cash and money market funds. And that's its ability to invest in a diverse range of fixed income assets. Rashad and Lara, they're not tied to investing into floating rate assets only that traditionally make up a money market fund, but have the flexibility to buy longer dated bonds, convertible bonds, inflation linked bonds, etc to outperform cash with limited downside risk. And I believe that in a a world of of low interest rates, this is going to be a critical differentiator. You will see that when Rashad talks about his position in inflation-linked bonds, which for a long period of time he had a zero allocation to, but now the fund is sitting at almost 12% in this. But before I spoil any more of the the presentation, I'll hand over to Lara to get things started. So Lara, could you kindly take us away? Thanks, Doug. Hi everyone, Um, I hope we're all keeping well. Just to get started, you know, Doug did nicely describe the mandate of the fund, but you know, just to kind of reintroduce, we are a multi-asset flexible income fund and we look to outperform 110% of STEFI, that's our benchmark, and of course our focus is on capital preservation. Uh, We believe that we've, you know, managed to deliver on this mandate through time. Last quarter was certainly one of the more difficult that we've ever had to experience, and it was one of the first drawdowns of the fund. But given the exceptional times that we that we are living in, you know, that that wasn't out of expectation in retrospect. And thankfully, we have managed to claw back those returns nicely in Q2. So Q2 has um, you know seen the world just rebound from the lows of Q1. In Q1, you know, obviously markets worldwide were was hit by this uh, coronavirus crisis, and markets plummeted to levels that we, well, certainly I haven't seen in my career. Bond yields, in particular, local bond yields, were hit very hard. The local ten-year hit as high as 13.4%. The quarter now that's just passed, however, has seen a complete rebound 
of local government bonds back to pre-COVID levels. So our uh, 2030 allocation has been a nice contributor to, to our returns over the last quarter. Our allocation to linkers, which we are currently building, was also a nice contributor to returns. And our uh, floating rate assets, as well as our small allocation to property and preference shares were also contributing factors to our return over the last quarter. As I've said, asset classes worldwide rallied and the local market was certainly no exception. Properties were up 18.7%, prefs up 13, the Albi was up 10% and Linkers I know was up close to 18% for the quarter. The RAND mildly strengthened, although the RAND is probably the one asset class that is still lagging pre-COVID levels. So where are we globally? I mean, we're living in exceptional times where developed markets are essentially no longer offering any yield. We knew this was the case in, in Europe and Japan, but you know the US has now joined this club as well as other markets like Australia, etc. So global central banks in response to this pandemic have provided unprecedented support in terms of monetary policy. The Fed has, has taken the lead in terms of the support and they've cut their interest rates now pretty much close to zero and they have engaged in QE like we've never seen before. The Fed has purchased about $1.7 trillion worth of, of treasuries. They've promised to buy up to $750 billion in corporate bonds. Previously, they would only engage in this through purchasing ETFs, but now they're going outright and, and purchasing the bonds outright. They've promised 500 billion support in municipal and local government bonds. They've provided support to money market funds. They've provided, provided support to commercial paper markets. They've opened swap lines with central banks around the world. And the liquidity injection that the market has seen over the last quarter has certainly been unprecedented and like something we've never seen before. Looking at the Fed's balance sheet alone, if you look prior to the COVID crisis, they were sitting just around 4.2 trillion. Their balance sheet has now increased to over $7 trillion. I mean, this is absolutely massive. And yes, we've seen signs of economic recovery, but these signs are mild. You know, this, this rally we certainly attribute to, to central bank policy and, and not to the fundamentals of, uh, of the economy or corporates uh, to any degree at this point in time. We also have to think, what are the long-term implications of, of this kind of, you know, very liberal monetary policy? Or, you know, we know that this kind of monetary policy and this, this level of liquidity injection certainly affects the market's ability to allocate capital efficiently. So you are at risks of uh, what Mohammed Al-Aryan nicely called zombie markets. So we know of zombie companies, companies, you know, that, you know, basically should be bankrupt, but because of, you know, low interest rates, they're able to keep going. These kind of liquidity inje injections increase the risk of what we call zombie markets, which means investors pretty much believe that it's a win-win situation, that either fundamentals improve and the asset prices will run, or central banks are there to support asset prices and they continue to run. So there's this risk of zombie markets being created by this 
huge, huge liquidity injection. So, you know, that's the one potential effect of, of, of central bank intervention. Another potential effect is, of course, what does this do to currency value? Will investors, particularly in developed markets, because we know in emerging markets, you know, QE is never a, a market-friendly policy, but for developed markets, QE, what will this do to the value of currency, to the value of the dollar, for example? You know, if, if fresh money is just being created and printed to this extent, you know, does the, the value of the dollar hold? And secondly, you know, newly created money should mean inflation. In 2008, however, we were surprised when QE didn't generate inflation. But if you look further back, you can see that, you know, the last time QE happened was probably only in the 1940s. And there it was inflationary. So the market is, well, what's probably the biggest debate in the market at the moment is, will this event be inflationary or will it not? Will the dollar devalue and will it or will it not? So, you know, these are things that we need to see unfold over the next few months, but we certainly, we certainly can't say for sure whether it will happen. But what we can say for sure is that the risks around inflation have certainly increased and the risks around a weaker dollar have certainly increased. So taking you down now to emerging markets, QE is, is, is never a good strategy for emerging markets because generally investors lose faith in, in the value of the currency and debt is, tends to be inflated away. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a mechanism whereby emerging markets can inflate it away. And Although it was never a standard policy for emerging markets, this crisis has all of a sudden allowed emerging markets to perform QE and the market hasn't seemed to mind. So, you know, this has been an interesting development and we've seen emerging markets not only engage in QE, but also cut interest rates to levels that we probably, you know, certainly wouldn't think is prudent, but wouldn't even think is possible. Um, you can see uh, Brazil here, for example, has cut their rate you know, from what was 14% in 2016, uh, when they were in the middle of a debt crisis, now down to 2.25%. And, you know, Brazilian fundamentals are, are certainly nothing to write home about. So, you know, the global backdrop is signaling that we certainly are in a very interesting time. And in a time where what fundamentally uh, you know, used to happen and dynamics that were previously in place have broken down a little bit and we need to be extra cautious in navigating these. So let me just take you through local rates. So from the beginning of the year to now, the MPCs cut interest rates from 6.5% to 3.75%. So the lowering of global rates by various central banks, as I've mentioned, and the subdued inflation that we've seen as a result of this COVID crisis has allowed the MPC to react to the extent that they have. The moves have been quite aggressive and they've been quite quick, but you know, these, uh, this backdrop has allowed for this to happen. And naturally this stimulus at this point in time is so helpful and so necessary given just how depressed our economic activity is. I mean, just to give you an indication, the Saab and Treasury have GDP estimates for this year at around uh, minus seven. 
that is conservative relative to what we've seen various economists put out and those estimates are closer to nine or ten percent. So the market believes that in the next MPC, which is uh, I think it's on the 23rd of July, that the NPC will cut another 50 basis points and we completely agree with this. Um, we, we think that plus minus 50 basis points is what they can still do at this point in time. You know, there are always proponents in the market who call for more. You know, look at Brazil at 2.2. You know, why are we still sitting at 3.7? We don't agree with that point of view and we certainly don't believe that the NPC will act much more aggressively than 50 basis points for two reasons. Firstly, with the governor's communication to the market, you know, they've been very clear that the cuts that they've done have been front loaded, which means that the bulk of what they believe they could do when this crisis came on, they've most likely already done at this point. And anything now will probably much be much smaller in nature. And secondly, the governor and the MPC are also very, very aware of the South African risk premium and talk about it and emphasize it quite a bit in their communication to the market. So what do I mean by this risk premium? I mean, rates need to stay sufficiently high to keep capital in South Africa and to compensate investors for keeping their, their capital in South Africa. The governor has said that he views it as part of his constitutional mandate to protect the value of the rand, to protect our currency. And should the compensation rate become too low, it would certainly make our currency vulnerable in terms of capital flight. So we believe that they will stay on the side of prudence and rather move in smaller steps from here on. So yes, we believe 50 basis points in likely, but should they surprise us, we think they will rather surprise us on the downside than on the upside. So we've seen how low our repo rate is, but you know, there, there is still yield in South Africa. I mean, you can see our, our 10 year bond there at 971 or closer to, to 960 today. But um, you know, there is certainly yield. And what you do see is this massive discrepancy between our 10 year yield and the repo rate. So what this implies and what we all know is that the South African yield curve is incredibly steep. It's probably, if not the steepest yield curve in the world, one of the steepest yield curves in the world. And, you know, you have to ask, well, why is this the case? Why is there such a big dislocation between the short end rates and long end rates? And that's because investors are pricing in two different things. Firstly, investors in South Africa are pricing in a significantly higher risk of a higher stock risk. Let me put it this. Let me put it that way. The creditworthiness of South Africa has has certainly come into question over the last few years, and uh, the yield for for longer end debt has has increased substantially. Another reason is the issuance of these bonds. These bond prices have gone down significantly because the market has just been flooded with so many of these things over the last few few weeks, especially, but over the last year. I mean, if you look April 2019, there were 3.3 billion worth of bonds being issued every week. Now, if you look at March 2020, that increased to four and a half billion. No. 
that now in July is sitting at 6.6 billion, which means in just a year and three months, our weekly issuance has gone from 3.3 billion to 6.6 billion. So our market is just being flooded with bonds. And naturally, our, our longer end yields aren't following this 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 move down with the decrease in the lower end interest rates. So our, our curve remains exceptionally steep. So I talk about you know the risk premium and you know the investors are now pricing in a lot of um, insolvency risk in South Africa. And and why do I say that? The reason I say that is because of our fiscus and the dire condition that that is in. Towards the end of June, Minister Mbuweni presented the supplementary budget. This was because naturally due to the pandemic, they've had to reallocate a lot of expenditure and revenue assumptions were no longer correct. So they had to provide an updated budget to the market. And what was startling was we were always concerned about our debt situation. But what was startling is just how quickly this crisis has managed um, to, to accelerate this deterioration. So just to take you through a couple of metrics, the deficit in the February budget for the 2020-21 fiscal year was meant to be 6.8%. It's now come out at about 15.5%. What does this mean? It means that our debt to GDP ratio for the current fiscal year was meant to be 65%. It's actually now 82%. So this is only so this is only government debt. This excludes SOE debt. If you add the, the government guaranteed SOE debt, our debt to GDP ratio is actually 87%. If you add all SOE debt, so you are of the view that government will stand in for SOE debt, um, whether it's guaranteed or not, then our debt to GDP ratio is actually already higher than 100%. So, I mean, you know, these levels are just completely unsustainable. And what is exceptionally frustrating is if you look at our budget, currently 22% of all our revenue is now going to, ju to just servicing this debt. That means that we're spending more on servicing debt than what we're spending on education, than what we're spending on healthcare. So this is quite a situation to find ourselves in. You can see that, you know, the revenue is obviously not going to be what they'd expected it to be for this year in February. And the shortfall is around 300 billion. If you looked at the left-hand chart, you can see the shortfall against our expenditures, which just keep rising. So this gap between revenue and expenditure is just increasing year after year. And, you know, we have a very small window of opportunity to do something about the situation. So if we want to narrow the gap and we want to follow the active scenario on the right hand chart and we want to try and stabilize this debt to GDP ratio, we have to make some very difficult decisions and we have to implement some serious reforms. If we don't implement these reforms, if we keep expenditure where it is and we keep collecting revenue at the rate which we had, the passive scenario is the result and we found ourselves in a certain debt trap. So what do we need to do to let this active scenario play out? What we need to do is we need to cut expenditure and we need to cut expenditure to a very significant degree that involves over the next two years cutting 160 billion from the public wage bill 
And over the next few years, it also means finding an additional 230 billion somewhere else in this budget. So, you know, given the government's track record for being able to implement these difficult reforms and decisions, I mean, I, you know, at this important juncture, they, they're still willing to fund what we would view as a non-critical SOE, such as SAA. So, you know, given this track record, we, we fear that the trajectory might be closer to the passive scenario than the active scenario. But, um, you know, we are hopeful at least that maybe, you know, they can implement some reforms to try and get us to stabilize this debt ratio at some point in the future. So we have this, this, this backdrop of very attractive yields. Our, our longer end yields are, you know, close to 10%, 9.6%, as I mentioned. And 10 years ago, when our debt to GDP was, you know, 30%, we would have been absolutely filling our boots with 2030s. We would have been, you know, running much higher nominal duration than where we are now. But, you know, the risks around holding government debt when you, when you question the solvency of the sovereign is, is, is very different. And, uh, you know, we can't argue or we can't get ourselves to be running very high duration when the tail risks around these instruments have, have increased to the extent that they have over the last few years. So where we do see value and where we have been adding exposure is in inflation linkers. We're able to add linkers now at yields of close to 4% and what we have been adding are the uh, R2025. So these aren't long bonds. Uh, they expire in, in January 2025, so we're still on the shorter end of the curve, and we're able to pick them up at close to 4%, which means that even if there's no inflation, we're earning close to JABA. But of course, there is inflation, so we'll earn more than that. Yes, inflation is a bit subdued at the moment, but you know, should it even return to the lower end of what it used to be, let's say 4.5%, will be generating an 8.8% yield. If it returns to, you know, what was an historical average, we'll be earning closer to 9.5%. But another reason why we really like inflation linkers is because we think that there is a real possibility that South Africa will be forced to run higher inflation. And why do I say that? I say that because it's a very common tactic that emerging markets use to deflate their debt position. When inflation is high, the real value of your debt decreases and it's a way that you can deleverage yourself. We, we've seen it commonly amongst emerging markets in the past and, you know, should this debt trajectory continue, you know, it is a real possible outcome that we would have to you know, try and navigate. For this reason, um, we have been working our inflation linked bonds allocation up and it is currently sitting at about 12% of the portfolio. We've worked it up from about a five to 6% position. So where are we um, in terms of fund positioning? Our money, money market and floating rate bonds, uh, you know, these are, are NCDs, uh, these are uh, good quality corporate bonds and other money market instruments. Our fixed rate bonds, uh, that is not all government bonds. We only have about um, six and a half percent in government in fixed rate government bonds. Uh, that's all in the 2030. That's about the 10 year bond. And that gives the fund a nominal duration of about 0.4 percent. 
Like I said, we've increased our inflation-linked bonds to about 12.7%. That gives us another 0.4 duration, so that brings our local duration to about 0.8. We still like our convertible bond position. That is a position in Royal Bafokeng. It's an extremely strong credit. The convertible bond is the only um, debt that they have on their balance sheet. You know, the, the yield, the coupon on that is about 7%. So should should the share price remain subdued, we just uh, collect our coupon and we're absolutely fine. Should the share price, however, run and there's a very um, strong rally in platinum, for example, uh, we will be able to participate on that upside. So convertible bonds are an area that we like very much, although the issuance locally is unfortunately not very big. Uh, we've got 2.4% in preference shares. Uh, those have done very well for us. They've seen a massive rally recently, but naturally due to liquidity constraints, it's not really an asset class that we can go, you know, very largely into. We've got very little property. Trying to find our local property allocation here in this chart, but I'm not seeing it, but it is still, it's still very small. It's under 2%. You know, it's one of these asset classes that we've been underweight for a while and it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, you've got to ask yourselves when you pull the trigger. And, you know, opportunistically on some names we have added periodically, but we're, you know, we're, very, we're still in general quite negative on the sector. We think real assets are fantastic to have at this point in time. But, you know, local property companies have leveraged themselves to such an extent that should things not recover quickly, the risks are still very much to the downside. We are happy, however, to pick up names that have less leverage and that have a bit more balance sheet space to, to weather the storm, which, as we have all, all know, might not pass anytime soon. Yeah, we've got a, a nice selection of offshore bonds, mostly South African names where we're able to get some nice hard currency yields. And uh, yeah, so the yield on the portfolio is now sitting at about 6.8%. Uh, the total duration is 1.2. That includes our, our offshore duration and that 0.8 that I mentioned locally. And yeah, you know, we, we will continue to, to take advantage of opportunities as they arise. We are still quite cautious on, on, on local bonds, as I've mentioned. But, you know, given where yields are, we are happy to hold um, a moderate allocation of those. And um, as I've mentioned, something that I think you can expect to see is that that linked those inflation linked bonds continue to increase and um, properties sector probably not to increase aggressively or significantly at all. But we will look for selective names as they sell off to levels that we're comfortable with. Thank you. So we have we have a number of questions that's, that have come in. Yes, the first question that's being raised is, is you know, talk around South African government bond position and a sovereign debt crisis. And I guess, firstly, what the implications would that be on, on interest rates and in particular inflation, but also how that would feed into the currency? So I think that if you look at one of the key risks for South Africa, uh, the fund, but I mean, it's a risk for anyone living in this country, the potential for a debt crisis is definitely there. And I think that the impact will be felt not only through uh, the bonds or an income fund, but it, it, will be it will be felt throughout the banking system and basically throughout the whole economy. So 
we have to be aware of that. But at the same time, uh, you know, we can't effectively, uh, you know, put a, put our money under the mattress and not, not do anything. Uh, what we have to presume is that the fix for South Africa entails a component of different things. I don't think any one thing is going to work, but you need a component of slightly of higher inflation in order to reduce the, the real value of the debt. You need to have a component of currency depreciation to increase competitiveness, and you need a strong dose of reform in order to move our debt closer to the active line and help it to flatten out so that we're not on the just upward trajectory which eventually leads you to that debt crisis. So I think those are the, the kind of uh, combinations of effects that you know we expect would materialize and that's part of the reason why we do have some FX exposure. We have trimmed our nominal ex bond exposure and, we and we're moving more into the inflation-linked bond space because we think that part of the cure for South Africa's debt crisis is to run with a bit of a higher level of inflation and a weaker currency. Uh, but through those combinations, I think that we, we're trying to position for a, a number of things happening because, yes, the debt uh, we've been giving presentations, I think, over the last three years, the, the key issue that we've been highlighting in our fixed income presentations is the potential for a debt crisis in South Africa. And Rashad, over the quarter, we have cut down, we, we sold out of, of the R186. And um, as Laura mentioned there, we've got a 6% position retained in the R2030. So we still we still have a, a, a an exposure to, to government debt. But Given the extent or the steepness of the yield curve, why wh wh why have you chosen to position yourself in the 10-year bond as opposed to the five-year bond? So if you look at, uh, I think Laura mentioned, the, the yield curve steepness is unprecedented uh, both across the world and in South Africa. So you do get a massive yield pickup from having some bond exposure. But as she pointed out, so she had the graph of the repo rate as well as the US, as a 10-year bond, and you can see there's a massive gap there. And that's why on a diversified basis, it does make sense to have some government bond exposure. And the reason why we've gone from the 2030, which is a nine and a half year bond versus the 186, is because you're getting a close to 2% pickup for from a six and a half to a nine and a half year bond. So for three extra years, you're getting a 2% pickup, which is well above what has prevailed historically. And we can have some duration in the fund while having a slightly lower nominal bond exposure, given the fact that the R2030 has a higher duration. So I think, I, I think that if you look at our portfolio positioning, we have trimmed from around a 10% position in nominal bonds down to around a 6% position. So we have been a bit more conservative as yields uh, rallied in the last month or so. We have used that opportunity to trim, but I do think when we look at a portfolio construction view and given the steepness of the curve, given the yield pickup over money market, it does make sense to have some exposure, but being wary of the potential downside risk and having making sure that we have the right diversification and we limit that exposure uh, relative to what it might have been historically. There are a couple of areas, there are two, there are two areas where I think we can go into there. And the first one I'd like to go into is, is the Saab um, and rate cuts and what your expectations are for further rate cuts there, because I think that's going to yield an even steeper yield curve, we might expect. No, I, I think that, the, the you know, the market is looking for another 50 basis points, uh, which we think is, is quite plausible. 
but there's been now a total dislocation between the, the front end as well as the bond curve because the front end is driven by the fact that inflation in the near term is short is 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 low and the Saab needs to uh, you know keep rates low in order to support the economy in what is you know an, a, an extreme recessionary environment but the longer end is more focused is high is much higher because of the solvency risks which we've, which we've talked about for, for, for a long time and which have, are now coming to fruition. So we're seeing a little a dislocation uh, between those two and therefore we'd expect this steepness of the yield curve to prevail. And for us, that, that fair valuation in terms of our bond and what, what risk premium we expect, uh, you know, is driven far more by the, the solvency risk and the risk premium on the bond curve rather than just what is the short end yield. So yes, the SARP can cut yields on the short end, but it may not necessarily uh, lead to a bond rally because we expect that risk premium to remain quite elevated. I think what we're monitoring and what we're looking closely for is to see if there's a fundamental shift in policy framework coming out of Treasury, but also the broader cabinet in terms of structural reforms, in terms of willingness to take tough decisions and we have not seen that to date. The fact that we're still grappling with SAA in what is such a dire economic scenario, we're still writing blank checks to all these SOEs, that does not lead us to believe that this risk premium can compress anytime soon. And given that, we, we're going to maintain a limited exposure to bond. The only time we'd say, look here, this is an opportunity to have a far more aggressive position given the steepness of the curve and given the elevated risk premiums, premiums is if we have some sort of convic conviction that between the Treasury and the South African government, they are willing to take some tough decisions. And with your concerns around sovereign, around sovereign, sovereign risk or default risk and I guess currency risk and inflation risk in South Africa, why haven't you increased your, your offshore bonding or offshore currency exposure beyond the, the 6% level? Because, uh, I mean, that, to give you context, that's around the middle of the 0 to 10% range. We have increased somewhat, um, uh, you know, just in, in the last two weeks. We did actually cut that exposure when the RAND had gotten to extreme levels. Uh, you know, in, in, above 18, we felt it was undervalued. The thing about currency, what you have to remember is it's a relative gain. And effectively, the rest of the, the even though South Africa's fundamentals look poor, the same thing is relevant for the rest of the world. So you've got uh, quantitative easing and massive fiscal deficit, not only in South Africa, but in fact in the US. So for example, we're using the US dollar as a hedge. In the US, you've got a 17% fiscal deficit expected for this year, which is, you haven't seen that since, world, since the world war. So this is an unprecedented level of fiscal stimulus. And you've also seen monetary stimulus that we've, we've never seen before. So yes, you can have some FX exposure in order to provide you with some risk off hedge, but it's very difficult to justify, you know, large amounts of ex FX exposure, the rest of the world is also engaging in this competitive devaluation process. So we've decided that it's prudent to be around the middle of the range. And in fact, you know, given the, given the type of risks we see in the global markets as well, we've maintained our offshore physical exposure at, uh, you know, below 20% because 
there's a lot of uh, you know risks in terms of offshore bonds and you know the offshore dollar bond exposures and therefore we, we also don't think it makes sense to be adding massively to those positions i think diversification and moderate exposures to a range of different asset classes and and strategies be they local or offshore we think diversification is the key strategy going forward thanks rashad the other question we've been getting quite a bit in the Q&A is just around the positioning on S on SOE bonds, um, particularly Land Bank and ESCOM. Could you maybe just talk us through some of those positions and why you're still comfortable with them in the fund? Okay, so I'll start with with uh, Land Bank. We've, we do have uh, that position in Land Bank. It's currently about three and a half percent of the fund. And, you know, we viewed Land Bank being 100% state-owned being a critical SOE and also being relatively small. This is not a problem. You know, Land Bank's book is, is around uh, 40 billion rand. So you're not talking the, the five, 600 billion rand, uh, you know, ESCOM type problem. It's relatively uh, uh, limited in terms of its uh, existential risk for SA. And we believe that, you know, Treasury would, and, and the South African government would look to support it and stand behind it be, being a critical SOE. So that was the, the 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 rationale for that holding, and and we still think that's hold, that holds. And if you looked in this interim budget, what we saw is a, a three billion capital capital allocation to land bank in order to help with that restructuring. We've been quite involved in the restructuring process, and we've seen uh, you know it's quite slow given the issues that they face and given this is an SOE, but you've seen consistent steps in trying to solve the problem and now you've got the capital injection from Treasury and we've seen a concerted effort from Treasury to try and solve that problem. So in an asset where you're getting Jaiba plus six or 700, which is what we're getting on the portfolio, we do believe that it's a it's a nice asset for the, for the fund to be holding in, in this type of environment and we do think that it's a very high risk premium and we will be compensated for that. On the ESCOM side, we do have exposure on the guaranteed side, and we've got uh, some on, we've got about 2% exposure on uh, on the unguaranteed side in the offshore space, but that we are getting a yield of around 9% in dollars. So that is a phenomenal yield once you hedge that back in, and it's got about six months to go. So that's a January 2021 bond maturity, and we're getting about 9% in dollars. So I think from a return versus risk perspective, we do know that Eskom has got a 55 billion cash injections from Treasury guaranteed for the next uh, for 2021 as well as 2022. So, given that explicit level of state support that's already in the budget, and the majority of our holding offshore is maturing now in January 21, it's just over six months to go. So, we're quite comfortable with that risk. Uh, so, it's a so from both of those, it's a function of what the yield is, what the risk. And also the term, what we've made a concerted effort to do from a, from a, if you look at our land bank, our average term is sitting at around 1.3 years on land bank. And what we've done in the, in over the, over the last few years, and in fact, we, we, this is, this is going to be a case going forward, is we've limited the term on SOE debt. So we have understood that risks have increased. And what we've, what we've decided to do is reduce that term. And you've seen that come through uh, in a lot of our holdings, both on the corporate side, but especially the SOE, where the weighted average term has really come down substantially from where we were a few years ago. Thanks, Rashad. I think we have one more question that we can get through. 
And I guess this speaks to probably a broad a broad query around um, around your positioning around capital protection against a potential second wave that 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 we could see impact markets further. And just how you have positioned the the fund for I guess a a, a, a sell off event if 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 that is a possibility in various scenarios that you're building. So. You, you know, if I look at this fund, you know, over the last decade, the, the three key factors which have driven the performance of the fund is firstly, the diversified alpha approach, so diversification. Secondly, uh, avoiding expensive asset classes, uh, because that's when you have the big drawdowns when asset classes are overpriced. And then thirdly, a high degree of credit quality. And if I look at the scenarios that could potentially materialize going forward, we are in very unprecedented times in terms of the risks that are out there. And unfortunately, in any type of investment you do, even if you have to sit in cash in the net bank bank account, uh, there's no such thing as being able to totally divorce yourself at risk of risk. So what we have to do is make sure we can construct a portfolio that is de-risk as possible and is diversified as possible. So all the key things that are there in terms of diversification, avoiding overvalued asset classes and credit quality, that's been our philosophy for a long time and we are doubling down on that philosophy. We believe that diversification, credit quality is even more important as I mentioned just now, we've reduced term and we make sure that we've got a mix of different asset classes, be it an allocation to nominal bonds, be it at the linkers, be it to floating rate notes, be it even to shorter term money market assets. So we've got this mix of different asset classes, both local and offshore, and we've, we, we're trying to construct a portfolio which can protect our fund in a range of scenarios. And, you know, you can have the, the outcomes going forward, both locally and offshore, can range from potential deflationary kind of debt spiral to an inflationary type of environment. So you can get a broad possible range of outcomes, and we have to make sure that this portfolio is robust in all these different range of outcomes. So we we have taken some measures to, to de-risk compared to where we were in March, uh, primarily, for example, in terms of the nominal bond exposure, we have trimmed that. But at the same time, we can't have zero given the, the level of where money market rates are versus bond rates. So it's about having the broad possible range of fixed income asset classes, having hedges in place and diversifying as much as possible, given that we are in a very difficult environment where returns and returns are going to be hard to come by and risks are increasing and the potential range of scenarios is quite broad on on interest rates on inflation on currency uh, is you need diversification is key in terms of how we have to construct this portfolio going forward thank you very much rashad i believe that's all we have time for thank you again for taking the time away from your desk rashad and lara and for everyone on the call, I trust that you found this conversation both useful and informative. For those that have further questions regarding the fund, please do get in touch with your Ned Group Investments representative who will be happy to assist. And of course, this recording will be made available to yourselves and to your clients via various media and podcast forums. So from myself, Rara, Rashad, my colleagues at Ned Group Investments, goodbye. Netgroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act.
NetGroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit netgroupinvestments.co.za.